Good morning, everyone. Good to see you today. Every year here at Seabreeze, we hire a CPA firm, an independent CPA firm, to conduct either a review or an audit of our finances. And the reason is pretty obvious. It's not enough for us to just think that we're doing good financially. We need independent verification of the facts. It would be foolish to walk around thinking that you're financially healthy if you are not, in fact, financially healthy. Now, when it comes to our relationship with God, there, of course, is much more at stake uh, than there ever will be financially. Uh, spiritual stakes are eternal in nature. But we tend to walk around with only a general, maybe vague feeling about what is true in the area of our relationship with God. So we're beginning this new year by conducting a sort of personal spiritual audit. Uh, this is for you to take yourself. This is not for you to apply to anyone else. This is just personal. The spiritual CPA that I have selected for this exercise is the Old Testament prophet Malachi. Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament portion of the Bible, and it serves as a summary statement of the human condition from God's point of view. It's an interesting back-and-forth exchange between God, what he says to the prophet Malachi, and the response of the people. Basically, God opens up usually by declaring a statement of truth about them, and then they respond by denying it, saying, uh-uh, not true of us. And then God opens up the books on their life, and he points to the evidence. Now, this spiritual audit was conducted 2,400 years ago, but its conclusions are still very true of us now in 2020. Before the audit, God makes a very important opening statement. He declares his love for them and for us. And we looked at that this past week, last Sunday. And this is a very important and reassuring statement at the beginning of the audit, because the audit is not a favorable one for them or honestly for us. So God begins by making it very clear that this audit is not about his love for us. Once that's been settled, we can now look through the fact that he loves us, and there's nothing we can do to stop him from loving us. We can look through the lens of that fact and be honest about what God says in this audit. So today we turn our attention to the first finding in this spiritual audit, and that is that they are cooking the books morally. Now, I'm borrowing a phrase, of course, from the modern financial world. Cooking the books is the practice of making the financial data look better than it really is, and this is what they were doing morally. They're making themselves appear better morally than they really were. The most famous example of cooking the books financially uh, was Enron. In November of 2001, Enron revealed that it had been overstating its earnings by hundreds of millions of dollars since 1997. In just one month, they went from being the seventh largest corporation in the U.S. to bankruptcy in just one month. A more recent example of cooking the books financially is what caused the financial collapse back in 2008. Risky mortgages that were of no real value were chopped up, divided up, and mixed with good mortgages to hide the bad mortgages. And that went on for a period of time, but eventually, as always is the case, the truth comes out. And when the truth came out about this, it caused the collapse. Now, God wants to prevent this kind of moral and spiritual collapse from occurring for us, so he reveals the truth to them and the truth to us. They were doing things that made them look very spiritual. But for all of their spiritual cooking of the books, the audit revealed that there were some pretty big problems between them and God. Now, what is it that looks spiritual to us? How is it that we 
kind of determine whether someone, us or others, are being spiritual? Well, we're usually impressed with these two displays. You know, if someone is doing spiritual rituals like going to church, we assume they're, they're spiritual. They're, they're good spiritually. Also, if someone is displaying some positive emotions, words and emotions in the direction of God, again, we, we take that as an indication that they must be a spiritual person. And this is what the people of the day were doing back in the Malachi audit. They were doing both of these at this time. They were participating in the temple rituals, and when they would pray, particularly some of them would pray with tremendous emotion. But God is not fooled by their rituals or their emotions. And he asks two very different questions. And he asks these same questions today. Question number one is, how are you honoring me? And question number two is, how are you loving other people, them? This is how God determines whether someone is healthy spiritually. Are you honoring God, and are you loving other people? We're going to look at the first part of this finding this week, the honoring of God, and then we're going to turn our attention to the loving of people next week. This first question, the honoring question, is addressed in Malachi chapter 1, verses 6, through chapter 2, verses 9. We're going to kind of work our way through this in order. But here's how it begins, Malachi 1, verse 6. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I'm a master, where is the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty? It is you, O priest, who show contempt for my name. But you asked, how have we shown contempt for your name? Honor is what we give to those we respect and view as authorities in our life. It begins with our parents. It continues on with maybe our bosses and other people in authority over us. We honor them because of their position and authority in our life. And what was occurring at this time is they were honoring the human authorities around them, but God says, you're not honoring me. From the priests on down, they were showing contempt for God, not honor. They didn't agree with this assessment. That's why it says, but you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? Prove it. So God opens up the books of what they are doing, and he points his finger at two items. He goes to two places where honor is seen, where honor always shows up. The first place that honor shows up is in our personal sacrifice. So the first point this morning is we honor God by our personal sacrifice. Whenever we honor someone, there's a sacrifice that goes with that. The kind of sacrifice that we offer to God is an indication of the truth of how important he is to us, what we really think of him. Not what we say, not what we even think we think of him, but what we really think of him. Malachi 1, verse 8, this is what God says about their sacrifices. When you bring blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you? Says the Lord Almighty. At this time, the rituals of God centered around the temple. The people would bring the best lambs from their flocks to offer as a sacrifice. This ritual pointed to the day when the blood of Jesus Christ, who is called the Lamb of God, would be sacrificed for 
all of our sin. But this routine of offering sacrifices to God was also a regular reminder of the fact that in light of God's mercy, they should offer themselves as what Scripture refers to as a living sacrifice, a daily life sacrifice. And God is pointing at this point to a common practice that accompanied this ritual, this sacrifice. Rather than go through their flocks looking for the very best to offer God, they would walk through their herds looking for the worst one in the bunch. They would pick the one leaning up against the fence about ready to die anyways. Or the one that was blind, it would never be worth anything in the market. And they would take that one to the temple. And they would offer that to God. And God's response is basically, who do you think I am? I mean, try that stunt with your governor, God says. Would he be pleased with you? The answer is obvious, no. Why not? Well, it would be obvious. It would be a visible statement of what you really think of him. And they would never do this. Now, you you would be treating the governor, the one who has a lot of power in your life and can make your life a lot better or a lot worse, you'd be treating him with contempt if you showed up with a diseased animal and said, here, a gift from my family to the governor. That would be a risky thing to do. And of course, they would never even think of doing this. They knew better than to offer the governor their leftovers. So what God is saying is, if that would never cross your mind to treat him this way, then what makes you think, I'm okay with it? Don't you realize who I am? I'm not just the governor. I'm the one you pray to. You don't pray to the governor. You pray to me. Verse 9 of Malachi 1 says, Now implore God to be gracious to us. This is what they were praying. Oh, God, please be gracious to us. With such offerings from your hand, will he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? So on one hand, they're saying, oh, God, please help us. And on the other hand, they're bringing him the leftovers of their flocks. We ask God to be gracious to us because we know we need his help. We need his kindness and his grace in our life. Verse 11 of the same chapter, God says, My name will be great among the nations, from the rising to the setting of the sun. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to my name, not diseased offerings. Because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. What God is saying here is, you know this, I'm the one that rules the world. From the rising of the sun to the setting of it, you can see what I rule. I don't just rule over families. I'm not just a parent over a family. I don't just run a business. I'm not just the mayor of a city. I'm not just the governor of a region. I rule over nations, not just one nation. I rule over every one of them. So when you have the opportunity to offer a sacrifice to me, the the one that rules everything, don't you think I notice how you go about selecting the sacrifice? I see you let out a deep sigh when it's time to go to the temple and offer a sacrifice. I see, you, I see the wheels going in your mind. You're trying to figure out, okay, what's the bare minimum that I can show up with? I know that to everyone else, it may look like you're honoring me by just simply showing up with something. But I can see what you're offering me. 
And it tells me the truth about what you really honestly think about me. Now, we read this and we begin to understand what they're doing and we just shake our heads and think, what were they thinking? What's wrong with them? And as we're shaking our heads at them, it's easy for us to miss what God might be saying to us today. I mean, the temple is gone. The days of this kind of sacrifice ended with the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross for our sins once for all. But in Romans 12, we are told the kind of sacrifice that God requires from us now. Romans 12.1 says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. This is what we bring to God now. In other words, it's, it's the way that we pay out our days that lets God know now what we really, really think of him. So let's update the Malachi audit for this past year, for 2019. In order to conduct an audit of this past year, we'd have to switch out church for temple. The church is now the place where we gather to worship. This is what God said about the temple in the Malachi audit. Verse 10 of chapter 1. Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I'm not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands because of the kind of sacrifice they were bringing. Why, why did God want the temple doors shut? Well, their leftover sacrifices made it all a big sham. So the question we have to ask today is what would cause God to say the same thing about these church doors? What would cause God to say, you know what, let's just shut it down. Just close the doors. If that's the kind of sacrifice you're, you're going to bring, then, you know, don't pretend. Don't bother. Someone just please shut the doors and let's put an end to this charade. We are to bring to God a living sacrifice that's holy and pleasing. So I want to ask this morning three tough questions, auditor questions. Remember I said last week, you don't, no one goes to a CPA looking for emotional support. You go for the truth. No one goes to the prophets looking for emotional support. You go for the truth. Sometimes the truth hurts, but the truth is important. So these are three tough questions to get at the truth for you and me personally. These are questions that I've devised out of studying this passage that have really helped me not just shake my head at those people, but look at myself in this area. So here's question number one. Is God getting your leftover time? I'm going to say these in the way that God might say it to us personally, like he did in the Malachi audit. And I don't know if this is what God is saying to you. So I'm not saying this is what God is saying to you. I'm just saying this might be what God is saying to you because it's some stuff he said to me out of this passage. What God is saying to you is for you to determine, for you to be honest about. But this is some of what God said to me, particularly in my 20s in this area of leftover time. He said, Bevan, I see you deciding whether or not to come here on Sunday. Don't you think I notice <laughs> all the things in your life that are honestly more important than coming here to worship me? Do you, do you really think I can't see inside your mind and see how you sort and figure out whether you're going to do this or not? 
Don't, don't you think I notice all the things that truly, honestly, are more important than, and that immediately bump gathering to worship me from your day? I notice this. Now, it's just inside your head, so you may think you're the only one, but, but realize I'm God. I, I know what you're thinking. I see what you're doing. Bevan, I see you when the alarm goes off on Sunday morning, and you roll over in your bed, and you let out a deep sigh, and you say, oh, man, I'm too tired. I don't want to go worship God. I want to sleep in. Malachi 1.13, this is what God said to them. You say, what a burden. And you sniff at it contemptuously. This is what God said to me. Is Bevan, you roll over in your bed and you, you just let out this sigh, whether it's audible or inside, I hear it. And to, to you, for some reason, doing this is a burden to you. Bevan, I see you sitting there wishing, honestly wishing you were somebody else, somewhere else, thinking about somewhere else. Bevan, don't you know who I am? This should be the pinnacle of your week. You get to honor me, the one who you gave life to you and rules the world. You get to check in with everybody else before the God of all. But instead, Bevan, you stumble out of bed and through this hour so that you can get to your very favorite part of Sunday. Do you really think I don't notice this? You've got everyone else fooled, but not me. So, Bevan, if, if that's... If that's really what you think of me, honestly, stay in bed. You know, shut the doors. Just don't, don't pretend. You know, let's just be honest. Question number two, is God getting your leftover effort? God might say this, I see you working hard, putting in all of that effort and those late nights, and those early mornings, and all of that creative energy into your career, which is great, or into a hobby, which is fun, or into planning your future, which is important. But then when my church needs some of those abilities and some of that creative juice, you just can't seem to find the time for that. Or if you do, you show up with bare minimum effort. You know, just try bringing that C-level effort to work and see how well that goes for your career. You know not to do that. Don't you see that my name is on this church? You know, people, every Sunday they gather, and sometimes for them, this is the first time they've walked inside of a church, and they form their first impression of me based on the quality of the work and the effort you put in. Now, I want to get real personal with you on this for me. 20 years ago, I'd been pastoring this church for 10 years then. 20 years ago, I was given an offer to go back into marketing, which is what I'd come out of. And I spent two months praying about it and pondering whether I should do that. And in that time, those two months, my mind was flooded with creative ideas about what I would do with that particular business opportunity. It was like I came alive. I was up at night dreaming of what I might do, and I'd get up early in the morning thinking about how I'd organize this and who I might hire for that. 
It was just consuming me. I was so excited about the opportunity. And at the end of the two months, God made it really clear that this was still his assignment for me. But he put his finger on my heart. And this is what occurred to me. I, for two months, had put more creative energy and effort and juice into that opportunity than I had at Seabreeze for a couple of years. I didn't hear these words audibly, but I really heard them. What I heard God saying to me is, so, Bevan, now you and I both know what it takes to get A-level effort out of you. A lot of money. And, I mean, it just caught me. Because I would have said, oh, no, money's not important to me. That's why I left marketing in the first place. But it turns out the truth was revealed. And at that point, I made a decision. I haven't done it perfectly, but I decided, God, I'm going to give A-level effort to every assignment you give me. I'm not going to coast. I'm not going to drift. I'm not going to phone this in. Is God getting your leftover effort? Is God getting your leftover money? Question number three. I told you these are tough questions. God might say this, I see you looking over all of the stuff that I've given you. I know your name's on it, but let's be clear about why you have it. I gave it to you. And I watch you make the decisions about what to do with it, and particularly how much to give me. And I can't help but notice that again and again, what you end up doing is you give me the scraps from your financial table. What's left over after everything else is secure, after you've taken care of every other financial challenge? Once that's done, then you turn your attention to, all right, well, what can you give to me, God says. God says, don't you think I, I see that? Really? You don't think I see these things? You don't think I know what that means? What that really means is I'm a financial afterthought. I'm maybe a financial burden to you. The last entry in the discretionary part of your budget. At one point, I was treating the tithe to God kind of like the electric bill. I mean, you, you want to pay the electric bill to keep the lights on. And God just said, really? I've got the status of the electric bill in your heart? Again and again, for me personally, <laughs> I've had to fall to my knees before God and admit that he was getting my leftovers. If God really is the most important person in your life, it will be marked not by what you say, not by what you feel. It'll be marked by a trail of personal sacrifice for him. So if God and his church are just a matter of convenience, what the audit says is you're treating him with contempt. He is not to be a matter of convenience, a matter of sacrifice. The people of Malachi had made God a matter of convenience, not sacrifice. It was convenient for them 
to offer the livestock they needed to get rid of it. They needed to get rid of it anyways. There was a financial incentive in it for them. It looked like a gift, but there was two directions for it. So let me ask one of those hard audit questions. We say God is important. This is just for you. Where is the sacrifice? Now, I know many of you in this room, and I've seen the sacrifice you've made. I don't see as well as God does, but I see enough to know that you have honored him. So we honor God by our personal sacrifice. The second thing that God points to is we honor him by revering his word. This is the second place where honor shows up. It's whether or not we take the person we honor and what they say seriously. Here's what he says in Malachi 2, 5 through 6. My covenant was with him, a covenant of life and peace. And I gave them to him. This called for reverence, and he revered me and stood in awe of my name. There's that reverence word. True instruction was in his mouth, and nothing false was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness and turned many away from sin. This called for reverence, it says. What called for reverence? The existence of God's covenant. God's covenant are his words recorded in the Bible. And these are not just words for us to learn or to listen to. Maybe consider, these are words for us to live. That's why it's referred to here as a covenant of what? Life and peace. These are not just a bunch of rules. This is a description of how you can really be alive on the inside and how you can really experience peace in the middle of all of the challenges of life. So what does the Bible have to do with reverence? Well, as I said, you can't say you honor somebody and then ignore what they say. It's the same thing with God. We can't say, oh, God, I honor you, but I'm not going to learn and I'm not going to do what you say. No. The reverence points to the truth. So I have two questions for this one. Question number one is, are you guided by its instructions? In other words, do the words of the Bible actually guide your life? Do they get you to change direction or amend direction or, or maybe even turn a different direction? Who is the he that's being referred to in these verses? You might have noticed there's a he and a him throughout these verses that we just read. It's referring to the priests of the day. They were kind of the on-site spiritual CPAs. They were charged with giving true not false instruction to the people. Now, why do we hire a CPA firm here at Seabreeze every year to review our books? I mean, we have a bookkeeper, a good bookkeeper. So why do we go outside and hire a CPA? CPA stands for Certified Public Accountant. The P stands for public. That points to the fact that accounting is not just a private matter. It's also a public matter. In other words, there are agreed-upon accounting standards that we all, the public, need to adhere to if we're going to operate in this economy. If you want to have a relationship with a bank in this country, if you want to take out a loan, if you want to 
file reports with the IRS that are in keeping. You need to adhere to the public accounting standards. You can't just make up accounting standards on your own. The public and the laws that the public produce are an authority over us when it comes to the matters of finances. So that's why we need to check our private bookkeeping practices against the standards, the public standards, that are over us, beyond us. Now there is a standard, morally, that is even higher than whatever the public laws of the land are. And those, of course, are God's standards. Those of us who revere God have decided to guide our life by His standards. Now, none of us do this perfectly. But an indicator that we do revere God's words is seen whenever we hear the truth from God about some sin in our life, and it gets us to move. We act on that. We get back on track. We change course. We turn from our sin, is the phrase that's used in this audit. We don't justify it. We don't look around for cover to see who else is doing what we're doing and feel better about it. We don't go private and start living by our own personal truth. No, we, again and again, we honor God by working to get back on track. Honestly, this is much of what the Christian life is, getting back on track. Okay, yeah, I got to Okay, I got to work on that. The C in CPA stands for certified, certified public accountant. That points to the fact that there's a test that you need to take if you're going to be a certified public accountant. From what I understand from those who have taken it, it's a hard test. You don't just cram for this test and pass it. Oftentimes it requires several attempts before you're certified. But the reason there's such a rigorous certification process is it assures those of us who hire CPAs that they really know what they're talking about. I don't know all the accounting laws. Who knows all the IRS codes? Somebody does. I don't. It assures us that they're speaking the truth about the laws of accounting. Now, the problem related to the priests of this day is that the priests in Malachi had stopped speaking the truth about God's laws. Here's what's said about them in chapter 2, verses 7 through 8. For the lips of the priest ought to preserve knowledge, and from his mouth men should seek instruction, because he is the messenger of the Lord Almighty. But you have turned from the way, and by your teaching have caused many to stumble. You have violated the covenant with Levi. He was the very first priest in Israel, says the Lord Almighty. Why had the priest turned from the way? Well, turns out it was pressure from the people. Here's something we read that was said to another prophet in the Old Testament, Isaiah. Chapter 30, verses 10 through 11. Here's what the people said to him. Give us no more visions of what is right. Tell us pleasant things. Prophesy illusions. Leave this way. Get off this path and stop confronting us with the Holy One of Israel. These are the, account, the accountants that Enron looked for. Don't tell us the truth. Now, I personally, as a pastor, I'm not a priest, but 
now in the church, I lead in church. I personally have not heard those exact words, but I sure have heard that sentiment. Could you, could you not say more pleasant things? Stop confronting us with the Holy One. Now, I personally, I've got my master's degree in theology, and that has really helped me lead in this church. But that is not what certifies me or anyone as a church leader. It is faithfulness to God's word that certifies. For all of us, we all honor God when we revere his words, when we take his words seriously and use them to guide our life. Question number two, are you under its authority? In other words, is the Bible over you or under you? And you're looking down at it. Malachi 2.9 says this, So I have caused you to be despised and humiliated before all people. Things are not going well for you. Because you have not followed my ways, but have shown partiality in matters of the law. What does that mean? What's partiality? Partiality means there are some parts, that's the root of the word partiality, there were some parts of God's law that they liked, and they agreed with. And then... There are some parts they didn't like and they didn't agree with. It's the same today. There are some parts of what God says in the Bible that make complete sense to us. And we agree with those. We like those. But there are other parts of the Bible we don't. We disagree with it. It's not unusual to read the Bible and disagree with it. That's not unusual. I do that from time to time still. The key question at that point is whether the Bible is over you or under you. Whether you're your own personal accountant or whether you're subjected to any moral accounting laws from God. For me, after years of research, I decided the evidence was compelling that the Bible actually contains words from God, his words to us. And what that means is, it's over me. I'm not over them. And one of the key implications for me that switched at that point was this. Whenever I read something I don't get or I don't agree with, which, as I said, still happens, the question used to be, what's wrong with the Bible? The question now is, what's wrong with me? That's my baseline assumption. I read something, I think, huh? Really? That doesn't make sense. I don't like that. And then my next thought is, something's got to be off with me. I must have been drinking too much of the cultural Kool-Aid again, and I just can't see this from God's perspective. It takes time, sometimes months, for me working through something before, okay, I can see God's perspective on this. But it's an authority over me. And that's for all of us to decide. What's its role in our life? So that's the first finding in the Malachi audit. Now, again, it does not change God's love for us. But what it does change is our daily life and peace. Whether we live with meaning, whether we have a sense of peace that grows over time. So now it's up to us to decide whether or not we're going to act on this report. If you decide to act on this, 
I encourage you to take some time later today, maybe this week, to consider your life in light of these findings, these two categories. First of all, evaluate the kind of sacrifice that you brought to God this past year in 2019. Again, this is just for you. Was it mostly leftover time, leftover effort, leftover money? If so, what's one practical step you can take in 2020 to sacrifice? You don't wallow in guilt. You're forgiven. Confess it. You're forgiven. But what could change? And then secondly, evaluate how serious you took God's word in 2019. Just be honest with yourself about this. You're dealing with God on this. There's no fooling God. He knows. So just be honest. Did you read it much? Can you think of many or any times when you actually made a change or a turn in the direction of something you were going to do because of something you read in the Bible? If not, or if not very often, either start or continue, continue to carve out time to read it daily. And if you've never read through the whole Bible, I recommend you start doing that this year. You can find a plan online. Most plans are how to read through the Bible in a year. If you're new to this, even if you've been doing this for a while, I actually recommend the three-year plan. It's a little more realistic. Just start reading through it. But as you read through the entire Bible, it's a great way to prevent you from staying with your favorite parts and avoiding the parts that you don't like or you don't understand. Now, I know. I know this is hard for us to hear. I really debate about whether to work through the book of Malachi or not because, well, the truth can make us squirm. But you know, I decided to do this because I don't want you hearing about this when it's too late. It's much better to hear it now when we all have the chance to do something about these findings. So let's act and let's pray. Father, we, well, the more we read your word, one of the things we understand is how much more we have been forgiven by you than we could even imagine. We thank you for your grace in our life and your forgiveness and your love to us because it's clear we don't deserve it. But having your love secure, we now want to honor you. We want to revere you. So I pray you'd speak to us personally about at least one next step we can take this week to begin to do better in that. Help us, we pray, and we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.